Welcome to the Vision Podcast, a podcast that explores news, topics, and information of interest to the faculty, staff, and friends of the Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences. I'm your host, Karen Brown. And I'm your host, John Burrow. Greetings and welcome to the 25th edition of the Vision Podcast. While the month of September is known as Hurricane Month, hurricanes and tropical storms in late August, particularly Hurricane Ida, bombarded Mississippi and much of the Gulf Coast. And to discuss hurricanes, their impact, and what it means for Mississippi, we are happy to host Dr. Barrett Gutter. Um, And if you hear that puppy in the back, Bones always likes to make an appearance in our podcast, so say hello to Bones. But Barrett Gutter is an assistant clinical professor in meteorology in the Department of Geosciences. Dr. Gutter, welcome to the Vision Podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Gutter, we're glad to have you. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes. So I am actually from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, originally. So growing up, I have dealt with um, hurricanes. It's actually probably one of the things that got me interested into meteorology, um, that and tornadoes from when I was a younger child. But hurricanes was really probably my number one um, fascination when I was younger. Probably also due to the fact that we got out of school a bit, um, which is always nice. Um, but I actually went to the University of Alabama uh, to get my graduate in geography. And then I came to Mississippi State to get my master's degree in operational meteorology. And then I stuck around and got a PhD in earth and atmospheric sciences. Most of my research has been in severe weather regarding tornadoes um, and kind of the social science side, how people respond, looking at the accuracy of tornado watches um, and a lot of mitigation. Um, but I do have a fascination in all weather But um, after that, I was able to get a job as an assistant clinical professor here. So I teach a large portion of my courses through the online program. So I teach um, our online undergraduates and our online uh, graduate students in a variety of different programs. Um, And then I also teach on campus as well. I teach weather forecasting one and two on campus. So um, I have a really strong passion for forecasting. Well, and speaking of being from New Orleans, count me back. How old were you and where were you during Katrina? No, oh, goodness. Um, so I was in high school and we actually, we live just north of the city. So we live north of Lake Pontchartrain. So we never had a concern for flooding. So storm surge was never an issue for us. We were about 23 feet above sea level where we live, where my parents live and they still live there. Um, so we actually stayed. We ended up staying. My dad's a veterinarian in New Orleans. He takes care of the police dogs there. So he wanted to be able to get back into the city if needed. Um, but the experience was pretty unbelievable. Um, a lot of it took place in the evening when we were sleeping. Um, you know, a lot of damage. We had a few trees hit the house, but I think it was a really big wake up call. Um, not, not just due to the strength and the size of Katrina, but the infrastructure. Um, Even those that weren't affected directly by Katrina, as far as damage was concerned, you still saw a lot of people removing trees after the storm. Just in case another storm came through, they saw the damage of what pine trees can do, splitting houses in half. Uh, 
then when you have any tree damage, then you have to worry about inundation of water coming in from rain. Um, so yeah, it was a humbling experience. I think we were out of school for three to four weeks. Uh, we were out of, powder, out, out of power for about two weeks. And that's one of the big things people often forget about, I think, with tropical cyclones. You're looking at a Gulf Coast region that is so reliant on AC. And after these tropical cyclones come through, you are losing all your electricity, you're losing all of your AC, and so your food's going to spoil rather quickly. It's going to be hot, it's going to be humid, people are working outside to, um, you know, clean up the areas, and so you have to worry about heat exhaustion or heat stress. Um, I think those are some of the things that people often forget because once the storm goes through, you kind of forget about where it was, and you start focusing on the next spot it's going. You're so right. One of our alums posted, they stayed during Ida, but then after Ida passed, then they came up to Starkville and they said it's because they just couldn't stand being without power and cooling and air conditioning. Well, and that's, you know, that's the exact same thing my parents did. They stayed for Ida again. You know, they stayed, we stayed for Katrina, they stayed for Ida, and then they ended up going to Florida. But one of the big reasons for that was we've had tropical storms do more damage to our house than hurricanes have. You know, you get one pine tree that breaks off and punctures a six inch hole in your roof, and then you're dealing with six inches of rain, you're going to destroy the flooring of your house. So, you know, it's one of those things, a lot of people, if they don't have the concern of trees falling on their property are gonna wanna stay if they don't have to worry about storm surge and things like that, if it's more of a wind threat, because, I mean, obviously it's gonna be dependent on the structure of your home. You're not gonna to wanna to stay if your home is not well built or on a strong foundation. Um, but that's just kind of the way, you know, it's a protection. We wanna protect our property. I think that's just a natural instinct um, that we have. That's such a great point because I think we often wonder, why don't they leave? Why are they staying there? But getting that inside perspective is, is very eye-opening. Um, John had the idea for this podcast, episode Barrett this topic because of Ida and Ida nearly 16 years to the what the anniversary of Katrina um, but our listeners who may not be familiar with how hurricanes operate could you briefly explain how they are formed yes I'd be happy to so hurricanes also known as tropical cyclones are going to form over a large body of water Okay, and so they are simply a low pressure system. And so what that basically means is that the, the pressure of the atmosphere is less than the air around it. So you start having these winds coming together and these winds will start coming together and they'll start wrapping around that low pressure system. Well, the key with hurricanes is they get all of their energy from the ocean. So as soon as you get this circulation to develop, then you start enabling this hurricane to take all that energy from the ocean. So when you're looking at tropical cyclone development, you really need water temperatures above 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And a lot of people think, okay, let's just look at the sea surface temperatures. We have 80 degrees Fahrenheit. That's important. The other important thing though is, is you need that temperature to reach a, a certain depth of the ocean. So you typically want that temperature to go down to a couple hundred feet. If you want this hurricane to be able to strengthen and use that energy, because what's happening is that warm water has a lot of moisture. 
And that warm water is then going to be able to evaporate and then we'll be able to condense back into that storm. And anytime you get condensation taking place, it's a warming process. So it's giving that storm energy. So as soon as you cut off that warm supply of water to a hurricane, that a hurricane loses its entire fuel source. So unlike a mid-latitude cyclone, which came through yesterday on September 21st, where we had that cold front coming through, these tropical cyclones do not have frontal systems. They are, they are simply a warm core system with no fronts. So meaning that there is no horizontal temperature gradient. We are just looking at a, a very warm system that develops and is going to move where that warmer water is located. And they also, another thing that's very important when you're dealing with tropical cyclones is you need very minimal shear, meaning you want your winds to not be changing direction with height. And I say that in the way is if we want these tropical cyclones to form. So you don't want anything that could push that hurricane over. So if you think about it, a hurricane is like a chimney. Okay, so you have your heat source, your fire near the surface. It has to get rid of that energy. So it moves that energy through the chimney or through the center, the eye of that hurricane, and then it basically is going to remove it off the top of the storm. If you push that chimney over, you have no way to remove that excess energy or fuel from the storm, and so it can no longer grow. Gotcha. I like that chimney analogy. That's uh, it, it makes sense. Like, for example, if you're building a fire or something like yes. that. Yeah, it's it's the same sort of principle of heat, I guess, heat transfer. So yes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to follow up that question because I know, you know, you mentioned that hurricanes need that fuel source of warm water to continue. Uh, but what happens when they hit a coastline of say shallow water uh, as it, as the water becomes shallower and shallower? Uh, do they speed up? Do they dwindle energy? What happens? So Basically, so when, when these, I'm going to go back for a second, because when you get these hurricanes that form and they start moving from, let's say, Africa over the Atlantic Ocean, most of our hurricanes are going to form from what are known as easterly waves, or these disturbances that come off of Africa. And this disturbance leads to this lowering of the pressure, helps the circulation of the wind. So as these hurricanes begin to move west over the Atlantic Ocean, they are going to not be inhibited really by any body of water except once you get into the Caribbean then you start getting some land masses. So one of the things you have to take into consideration is not only the coastline, but the shape of the coastline and also the continental shelf. So where the continent actually goes into the water. And the reason for that is because you're going to typically have a much thinner body of water, okay, much less mass. That mass can hold less energy. However, that water can heat up much faster than you could see in deeper ocean. So one of the things you often see, and we saw this with Ida, is Ida, as it moved further and further to the north into the central Gulf of Mexico, the sea surface temperatures got very warm. And they continued to do so. And if you looked at the forecast for Hurricane, for hurricane Ida, Hurricane Ida was expected to intensify all the way to landfall. And the reason for that was the coastline right off of Mississippi, you have that marshy area, you have then um, that marshy, that marsh land is starting to kind of get destroyed from these hurricanes. But even though those, um, those areas typically have shallower water, that water is still very warm. 
Okay. So it can still go, give off a lot of energy. So it's really dependent on where it makes landfall. But once that hits the coastline, you're losing all of your heat source. Because as soon as that center of that system moves onto land, that energy is cut off. And so that's typically why you'll see a hurricane make landfall and then very quickly start to dwindle or start to diminish in intensity. Now, Ida was very interesting due to the fact that it remained a category four hurricane for several hours after making landfall. And I think part of that was due to the fact that it went through a very marshy environment. And so it was still getting some of that energy. But another factor was, is it was probably also allowing for a more evaporation to take place, which then left, led to condensation in the storm and helped strengthen it even further. So it wasn't, even though it made landfall on the coast of, of Louisiana, there was still large areas of marshland that it had to pass through. So it didn't fully weaken until it got past those areas. Okay. So dumb, dumb question. If Ida had made landfall in Alabama, we would have seen a different scenario? Maybe you probably would have seen it weaken a little quicker. Okay. I don't think you would have seen a different scenario per se. Um, I'd have to look at the sea surface temperatures and things like that. But if everything else was similar and you're dealing with a marshy environment versus a non-marshy environment, the non-marshy environment is going to allow that hurricane to weaken much quicker. Interesting. And also speed, speed has a big factor too. I mean, you look at a hurricane that's moving at a very slow rate that can stay over that warm body of water for a very long time, especially along the coast, it's going to keep resupplying its energy. And so one of the other big concerns is, is the storm weakening or is the storm strengthening at landfall? So if you had two identical storms, let's say they're both category three hurricanes, one is weakening at landfall, one is strengthening at landfall, but they both make landfall at the exact same speed. The one that is strengthening is going to cause more damage because it has the ability to mix down faster winds from aloft down at the surface. Whereas a weakening storm isn't going to be mixing through the environment as well. Gotcha. And I know, you know, you spoke, you spoke earlier about people who live further inland and obviously here in the Golden Triangle region, we are living further inland, obviously, from the coast, but we've all seen the damage that Ida did, and we remember Katrina in Louisiana and on the Gulf. What is the real threat to those of us, say, for example, in the Golden Triangle region um, from a hurricane or tropical storm scenario? I, I honestly think your biggest threat is going to be flash flooding. Okay. There is a concern, obviously, with wind. Um, and you know, if you, if for anyone who was here during Katrina, Katrina was a massive storm and it did produce very strong winds, um, tropical storm strength, even hurricane strength force winds in certain areas, I believe. Um, that was a big storm and a big outlier. The likelihood of us getting hurricane force winds this far inland is very, very low. It's a very low likelihood. Now, one of the concerns is, is it doesn't take very strong winds to push over a tree that has very saturated soil. And so that becomes a big concern. And when you start seeing these, you know, these day long rain events, 
and our ground is super saturated and we have root systems in our trees that are not very deep, mm-hmm. it doesn't take much for those trees to get blown over. So I was, but remember, remember yeah. that happened in my backyard. Yes. It wasn't, there wasn't even a storm, John. And my husband called and he said, the tree's coming down in the backyard. And it was just that saturated soil. It was the weirdest thing. So, so I would say wind is not, not your major concern. It's going to be flooding and especially flat flooding when you're getting this, these heavy downpours from those outer bands coming through and dropping a lot of water over a very short period of time. Well, then our other question that was so strange is you heard about flooding in New York mm. from Ida. And that was the other part that John and I were just so mm. perplexed about and interested in. You think of hurricanes like we talked about in the coast affecting that area. And you don't think as far north as New York. Can yeah. you describe to us how that happens and how we all need to pay attention to hurricanes hitting the coastland? Oh, yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter where... A hurricane makes landfall because as a hurricane makes landfall, what's going to happen is it's going to start making its way north and then turning towards the east coast. And that's due to the fact that all of our wind systems over the mid mid latitudes, so the United States, everything typically moves from west to east. In the tropics, everything moves from east to west. So as these systems move from east to west and then they get into the mid latitudes, then they start moving to the east. So they move through the Midwest, they move through the East Coast. Um, You know, the Midwest, if they were further to the north and then turning back over to the east. But the problem is, is each time you have a system like that, that has a low pressure system, it is already a well-developed storm, even if it loses the strength associated with a tropical cycle or a hurricane or a tropical storm, it's still a low pressure system that is pulling in a lot of moisture and a lot of air from the south. So it's either gonna be pulling in moisture from the Gulf Coast or the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean. So as Ida made its way up the Northeast, it started pulling in large amounts of moisture off the Gulf Stream, which runs up the East Coast. And all that moisture is then invected into the Eastern part of the United States because you still have a tropical cyclone that's associated with the low pressure. And that low pressure is going to pull air in and any air it can pull in from the south or the western part of the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico is going to allow for it to push a lot of moisture into the air. And when you have a slow moving system like Ida was, it can drop a lot of rainfall in a very small amount of time. And to me, those those like New York, for instance, that's almost a more dangerous situation because it's not going to be talked about as much. I mean, yes, right. the the weather, um, um, let's like the weather prediction center, everyone was talking about there is a very high likelihood of very heavy rainfall, but it's not the glamorous side of a tropical system. It's not- yeah, Jim lo- Cantore is not there, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's not- you're not going to get these beautiful pictures you see from the hurricane hunters flying into a well-developed um, tropical cycle. It's just like if you think about heat. I mean, heat is the number one fatality for weather. You don't think about that. And the reason you don't think about it, in my opinion, is because it's not a um, 
for lack of a better word, a sexy Mm -hmm. um, meteorological event. I mean, you're dealing with something that you really can't take pictures of. You can't go outside and take a picture of a heat wave coming through. You're going to take a picture of people sweating, um, whereas you could take a picture of a tornado that gets, you know, views from all over the country and things like that. And so it's one of my tangents I'm going on. Um, I love it. but I think you you know you get this you get this concern of okay Ida's made landfall Ida is no longer producing these strong winds people are going to naturally forget start forgetting about it and they just think okay now it's just another system moving across the United States and we often forget about the secondary threats that are associated with the landfalling tropical cyclone. That's a great point. Um, I wanted to also ask, uh, since Ida, we've obviously had some other tropical storms hit the, the coast here and other um, things. What's happening right now uh, with regard to storm development? That's a good question. So, and one of the things you'll also notice, too, is if you look in the Atlantic Ocean, um, what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of storms that are developing, but they're also moving into the northern and central Atlantic. They're not taking that westward track. So I think we're just in a pattern right now where we're really primed for development. We have an environment that has pretty minimal shear, meaning that the winds are not changing with height. Mm -hmm. And because anytime you get strong environment or strong shear, for instance, um, those are just going to, to topple any development that's occurring. And then also our sea surface temperatures are warm this time of year. And so I think it's three main things. I think we're getting very, um, very well-developed waves off Africa. As those waves make their way into the Atlantic, they're rapidly, not rapidly developing, but they're developing pretty quickly um, into an organized storm, and they're in an environment with very low shear. So we're starting to get these storms to develop faster and faster, and we're getting into the time of year. We're getting into peak hurricane season, where we expect to see the warmest sea surface temperatures um, and we're dealing with a low shear environment for the most part. So it's going to allow those storms to develop. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's also important to note is these storms, thankfully, most of the ones that are forming off Africa right now are moving west and then turning north rather quickly. The good news with that is, is there's something in the Atlantic Ocean called the Bermuda High or the Azores High. It's a high pressure system that develops. It's a prominent system that is there all the time but it weakens and shifts over time. So typically if your Bermuda high is very strong and it encompasses a large, large area, it allows those hurricanes to move west. But as soon as that Bermuda high begins to weaken or shift to the east, meaning closer to Europe, those storms are going to move along the western side of that high pressure. So they move out to sea. Gotcha. Okay. So like if you looked at Hurricane Katrina, for instance, or you looked at the 2005 hurricane season, we had a very strong Bermuda high that was located in the Western Atlantic. So those storms are going to stay, they're going to try to avoid that high at all costs. So they typically move around the periphery of that high. So a high pressure near the surface is going to rotate in a clockwise direction. So as that hurricane moves or tropical cyclone moves, along the southern side of that high pressure system, it cannot move north. But as soon as it gets to the western side of that high, now it can move north. And in 2005, that was directly into the northern Gulf of Mexico. Okay. So we're not out of the woods yet as far as 
no, possibility we're not out of, of hurricanes. We're not out of the woods yet. And now, now the next concern, so some of the ways that hurricanes or tropical cyclones form, one being easterly waves, that is one of the biggest contributor. But now that we're starting to get into our transition season, as we move into fall, we're starting to see these frontal boundaries come through. And so like yesterday, one of the things that we saw was a cold front move through. Well, as these cold fronts continue to come through and continue to get stronger, they're going to continue to push further and further to the south. So those cold fronts might be pushing into the Gulf of Mexico. Well, eventually that cold front is going to weaken and is no longer going to move to the south. Well, that cold front could be oriented or could be stationary over the Gulf of Mexico. And anytime you have a front like that, you have an area where you have two air masses coming together. And that can lead to rising air, that can lead to convection. And so that's why a lot of times we start to see um, development around the Caribbean or the Yucatan Peninsula or the Bahamas, things like that, where these frontal boundaries have stalled out. So the later we get into the season, that's going to be something of more of a concern is maybe not as much easterly waves, but then these stalled frontal boundaries. Well, Barry, you explain it so well, and we appreciate your time. I should also mention that the director of the National Hurricane Center is a graduate of the Department of Geosciences. Yes, he is. He is. Well, I really appreciate y'all having me. It's been, it's been wonderful. We are glad that you joined us for this edition of the Vision Podcast. Be sure to visit our website, www.cas.msstate.edu, for more information about the College of Arts and Sciences. Please be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We'd appreciate you helping us spread the word, letting others know about the podcast. You can also stay up to date on news and information about the College of Arts and Sciences by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mississippi State University College of Arts and Sciences, learning through discovery.